Good morning, everybody. Good to see you here this morning. And I think somebody put the sun in their back pocket because it's certainly brightening up out there after it was teeming down with rain just a little while ago. As I call to worship this morning, we're going to hear Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to an idol or swear by what is false. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Loving God, we are pleased to be here today. Pleased to be free to meet in Christ's name. Pleased to enjoy the relative comfort of this place. Pleased that somebody welcomed us at the door. Pleased that somebody else gave us a smile. Pleased that there are familiar symbols and words. Pleased that nothing too strange will happen. Loving God, as we recall why we are pleased to be here, we also realise how readily we grumble. Grumble that the service is not to our taste. Grumble about the chairs, or the temperature, or the lighting. Grumble that no one asked us the question we wanted to answer. Grumble that something unexpected happened. Grumble that something we expected to happen didn't. Loving God, as we recall why we grumble, we realise how richly we are blessed. Blessed that you have given us this day Blessed that you have given us each other. Blessed that we have the freedom to express our views. Blessed that you welcome us, whoever we are. Blessed that Christ meets us here. Loving God, in this hour when we are pleased, when we may grumble, And when we are blessed, 
May we be aware of your presence with us, welcoming us, challenging us, changing us, and inspiring us. May what we say, think, and do please you, so that we may deserve to be known as followers of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Today's reading is taken from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 35, Peter and Cornelius. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, who was a captain in the Roman regiment called the Italian regiment. He was a religious man. He and his whole family worshipped God. He also did much to help the Jewish poor people and was constantly praying to God. It was about three o'clock one afternoon when he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. He stared at the angel in fear and said, What is it, sir? The angel answered, God is pleased with your prayers and works of charity and is ready to answer you. And now send some men to Joppa for a certain man whose full name is Simon Peter. He is a guest in the home of a tanner of leather named Simon who lives by the sea. Then the angel went away and Cornelius called two of his house servants and a soldier a religious man who was one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their way and coming near Joppa, Peter went up on the roof of the house about noon in order to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. While the food was being prepared, he had a vision. He saw heaven opened and something coming down that looked like a large sheet being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles and wild birds. A voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Certainly not, Lord. I have never eaten anything ritually unclean or defiled. The voice spoke to him again. Do not consider anything unclean that God has declared clean. This happened three times, and then the thing was taken back up into heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius had learnt where Simon's house was, and they were now standing in front of the gate. They called out and asked, Is there a guest here by the name of Simon Peter? Peter was still trying to understand what the vision meant when the spirit said, Listen, three men are here looking for you, so get ready and go down and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said to the men, I am the man you are looking for. Why have you come? 
Captain Cornelius sent us, they answered. He is a good man who worships God and is highly respected by all the Jewish people. An angel of God told him to invite you to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Peter invited the men in and persuaded them to spend the night there. The next day he got ready and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along with him. The following day he arrived in Caesarea, where Cornelius was waiting for him, together with relatives and close friends that he had invited. As Peter was about to go in, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and bowed down before him. But Peter made him rise. Stand up, he said. I myself am only a man. Peter kept on talking to Cornelius as he went into the house, where he found many people gathered. He said to them, You yourselves know very well that a Jew is not allowed by his religion to visit or associate with Gentiles. But God has shown me that I must not consider any person ritually unclean or defiled. And so when you sent for me, I came without any objection. I ask you then, why did you send for me? Cornelius said, it was about this time three days ago that I was praying in my house at three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly a man dressed in shining clothes stood in front of me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and has taken notice of your works of charity. Send someone to Joppa for a man whose full name is Simon Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon, the tanner of leather, who lives by the sea. And so I sent for you at once, and you have been good enough to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God, waiting to hear anything that the Lord has instructed you to say. Peter began to speak. I now realize that it is true that God treats everyone on the same basis. Those who worship him and do what is right are acceptable to him, no matter what race they belong to. This is the word of the Lord. Every now and then, when I sit down and write my sermon, I feel not quite right about it. Is it a little bit too barbed, too acerbic in its style? Is it a bit too simple? Is it too complicated, too radical, too conservative, or too comfortable? Every now and then, I feel as if God is maybe saying to me, now, come on, Katrina, stop pulling your punches and say what it is that you need to say. And if I'm honest, this week felt a bit like that. And I'm not really sure I still quite got there, but there you go. I'm working with it. I read the passage from Acts that we've just heard read for us. Thank you, Victoria. That was a fairly large exercise in reading aloud. I looked at some commentaries, I checked out the Greek, which showed quite a few errors in the Good News Bible, but there we go. And it allows me to ponder what it might all mean. And then I wrote my sermon, and it was mildly challenging if you were open to the challenge that was there, but it was kind of 
safe and comfortable and not too threatening. And I just didn't feel that it was quite right. You know, God wasn't really very happy, but I was kind of fudging what I was being told to do. One of the dangers that all preachers face is pleasing the people. We all like to be liked. We all like to be popular. We all want people to say nice things when they walk past us at the door. We don't want them all to run out and never come back again. We want people to go away feeling happy and secure and comfortable and encouraged. And sometimes what we need is a bit of a shake-up. My call to ordained ministry came from a passage in Timothy where Timothy is given advice by Paul on what he should do. And every now and then I go back because I find the issue I'm facing is in that passage. It's kind of weird how God works, isn't it? And there is something in this passage in Timothy that says there will come a time when people want to hear the things that translated directly from the Greek tickle their ears. And there's a danger for preachers that we say the things that tickle people's ears, the things that they want to hear. Well, I'm trying not to do that this morning. I'm trying to do what I think God is telling me to do, but I may not fail because I'm a bit of a coward, you know, and I kind of step back sometimes from where it's going. But we'll see where we go. Acts 10, which we've just heard a large chunk from, along with half of Acts 11, is one of the longest single accounts of one event in the New Testament. It's actually getting on for as many words as the crucifixion account. So why did the author of Acts um, use so many words to talk about it? Something that took about four or five days to take place, but they've taken a lot of words to write about this. Why is that? Why have they spent so much time telling us about Peter and Cornelius? Well, the simple answer is actually this is one of the most significant events in the emergence of what would become Christianity. It was the event that marked the shift from it being a sect within Judaism to a whole new worldview. Whether we call it a kairos moment or an epiphany or a paradigm shift, in this encounter between a Galilean former fisherman and a Roman centurion, the whole future outlook of the church was shaped. And it seems to me we need to turn our attention to these two men as we seek to make sense of the story and ask what it might have to say to us. So firstly, the Roman centurion. We don't know very much at all about him. He was part of the Italian cohort or the Italian regiment, which was serving in Caesarea, part of Samaria. We don't actually know what on earth the Italian regiment or cohort was. It's a phrase used, as far as I can make out, just in the Bible. But we can assume he was probably an Italian man. He was successful. He had household servants. And he had the authority to send his soldiers off on errands of his own choice. Most likely, he'd grown up in a pantheistic culture that worshipped even some of the Roman emperors, as if they were gods. And yet, he is described as being devout, as fearing God, 
and as being generous in his almsgiving. One of the mistakes in translation of the Good News Bible is it says he gave generously to the Jewish poor people. The Greek makes no mention of whether he gave to Jewish people or Gentile people. He just gave generously of his money. It's entirely possible he knew a lot of it, and yet he was a proselyte to convert to Judaism, which we all met. But this man had not converted. Deeply spiritual man, and to him. Up with that expect a special message. message. Staying at the seaside upper 30th. Now, I don't know. A very. He sent them off and said, You've got some stuff. Fishing business. Brother called and Beyond that, we don't know anything's growing up. Thing. Peter, well, he wouldn't have had a rolled up scroll under your arm, but you know the kind of thing that I mean. He's not the sort of super holy person. But he was regularly in the synagogues and the temple with Jesus. And what a colourful character he seems to have been when we read the Gospels. Often described as being impetuous, somebody who acted first and thought afterwards. In fact, he would probably fit quite a few Baptist ministers I know who tell me it's better to apologise than to ask permission. I don't actually agree with that, but that's what a number of Baptist ministers I know say. They're a bit like Peter. Peter was like that. He had incredible insights during his time with Jesus. But he also had some crashing lows as well. Moments of fear. Moments of dishonesty. Moments of terrible, terrible regret. And I found myself wondering this week, how on earth did Peter feel when he suddenly was left in charge of this little group of believers in Jesus who are in Jerusalem. He's nowhere near where he grew up. He's nowhere near the things he found familiar. But he's in charge of this group of people. And the early chapters of Acts show us a small, all-Jewish fellowship finding its feet, working out what it means to live together, and then starting to experience persecution from the religious authorities, including one Saul of Tarsus. After Stephen had been executed, the believers were scattered around Samaria and Judea, leaving only the apostles in Jerusalem. That's a quite strange thing to imagine, isn't it? You've got the apostles still in Jerusalem, where it's especially dangerous, and other people have gone out. As the Jewish towns began to accept the gospel and come to faith in Jesus, Peter set off with others, presumably to find out about it. And this was the journey that was going to prove to be so life-changing for him. The Peter that we meet staying at the house of Simon, the tanner in Joppa, seems to me to have changed enormously from the man who denied three times that he knew who Jesus was. It's just before lunchtime. And he's gone up on the roof of the house pray. He's hungry. He wants to taste food. And somewhere between the heat of the day and the rumbling of his stomach, he experiences this dreamlike vision that will change the course of his life, but also the course of history. 
A container that looked like a giant sheet full of every kind of quadruped animal, reptile and bird was lowered down from heaven and Peter was told, there's your lunch, basically. Make a meal from this. And he was appalled. Eat a pig, a rat, a frog, a vulture, a bat, never. The law said these are unclean animals and he would rather starve, quite frankly. And the voice said, do not treat as unclean that which God has made clean. Three times, in typical Peter fashion, the vision was repeated. And he was left wondering what it was all about. A Peter who sees visions, let alone one who actually reflects on their meaning, doesn't readily spring to my mind. But there he is, left wondering how that which to him seems total anathema might be what God wants him to do. And of course, we've heard the rest of the story. Cornelius' delegation arrives after a journey of probably two days, and Peter, along with six other Jewish believers, set off for Caesarea, probably about two days' journey back again. And over the course of these few days, Peter's thinking has been radically transformed. He'd grown up believing that the Jews were the chosen people, that God's covenant, God's promises were for them alone. And now he is forced to face the possibility that God might be changing things, that the very things he'd seen as unclean or evil might now be included in God's promises. And by the time he gets to Cornelius' home, Peter is ready to do something totally unthinkable for any observant Jew. He goes into the home of a foreigner and accepts his hospitality. Now, if you go through to the memorial room, Paul's got that set up as a Roman fast food joint at the moment. And that's just fascinating because it so connects with this. And on the wall is a menu of what you would get in a Roman home or a Roman restaurant to eat. And that's probably what Peter was faced with in accepting this hospitality. So he might have had roast parrot, apparently, according to Paul's menu, or all sorts of weird and wonderful things that he would have, until that moment, seen as absolutely forbidden. And he goes in and accepts that hospitality. And I think we perhaps don't grasp how enormous that was. He was now defiled. He was unclean. And it doesn't seem to worry him. Perhaps it's as well he was a bit of an impetuous type because I think I would have been pretty worried if I had been doing it. But he tells the people about Jesus and they pray together. And as they do so, he thinks, well, it's quite clear that God's spirit is at work in these people's lives. And those who are with him seem to agree. And so the whole household is baptized into the name of Jesus. And this is a moment when everything changes. A handful of people, probably on the seashore, 
sharing in a rite of initiation into this new Jesus movement. Cornelius and his household are neither racially Jewish nor are they proselyte converts to Judaism. Not one of those men has been circumcised as the Jewish law requires. And we can't underestimate how important that is. The die is cast for the church. Never again will it be restricted to one race, one set of rituals. It's now a mixed community, and there will be diversity. And the implications rumble on through history and continue in our own day. But this was the moment that it all changed. Call it a Kairos moment, call it an epiphany, whatever you want to call it. At this moment, the paradigm changed. Peter was never going to be the same again. His presuppositions were overturned. And the same was true for Cornelius. He was never going to be the same again. And what about us? What are our presuppositions? What is anathema to us? Who are the people or the people groups we think are beyond the bounds of God's love and God's grace? This week, the Church of England has been in the news. Bless it. It's quite good at getting itself into the news. Two issues that are not unconnected in some ways have done that. There was the nomination of the Reverend Dr. Geoffrey John as a possible candidate for the Bishop of Southwark and the leak that said his name had been crossed off the list. Some parts of the church see this as a godly call. In fact, he's been described as an absolutely amazing minister. Others see it as totally wrong. And as I pondered the story of Peter and Cornelius, I thought, well, what if it had been messengers sent from Geoffrey John who'd knocked on the house where Peter was staying? How then might he have interpreted the vision? The other thing, of course, that's been getting the Anglican church into knots is whether or not they should allow women who are ordained as priests to be bishops. Some see that as godly. Others see it as totally wrong. So what if my friends, Sarah, and gosh, I've even forgotten, Olwyn, and other women priests in the Church of England, and Caroline up the road, what if it was one of them who'd been told by God to send a messenger to knock on Peter's door? What might have happened then? You see, whilst we can't underestimate the enormity of the shifts in Peter's thinking, the point is, are we willing to have our own thinking changed? And for each one of us, what it is that God might need to change will be different. It might be issues of gender or sexuality, but it might be something very different. 
And what seems right to me is we just take a little bit of time to do something a bit imaginative as we try to listen to God speaking to us. You might like to close your eyes for the next bit. You might not. Either is fine. But I want you to imagine that you are in a place in your home, in a church, whatever it is, that you've gone to be undisturbed, to think or to pray. It's warm and you're comfortable. And you realize you're starting to feel a bit drowsy. And as you look up, you notice something very strange is happening. A large tarpaulin sheet is being lowered on long ropes from the sky, perhaps through the ceiling or the window, to where you are sitting. And in that sheet is everything that contradicts the things you've been told about good Christian living all your life. tempting for me to suggest some ideas there, but that would be to force the, the direction of your thoughts. But what do you see in that sheet? The things that to you are just absolute anathema. How does that make you feel, having to look on those things? And a voice says to you, do not call unclean what God has made clean. What thoughts now are you thinking? Someone knocks at the door. A messenger asks to speak to you, and it's your worst nightmare. You have been invited to the go to the home of... Well, who is it? Who is the person or the people that God is showing you that you see as unclean? Would you go to their home for dinner? Would you eat what they offered? Would you risk the tuts of the minister if she didn't understand when you told her next week? Would you tell that person or those people about Jesus? And if so, what would you say? And so we come back to the here and now. We like church to be comfortable, don't we? We like to know which way we're facing and what we're going to do. We like the rules to be precise and the boundaries clear. But every now and then, God pulls us up and says, think again. Every one of us, like Peter, is on a journey of discipleship. 
learning what it means to follow Jesus, and now and then having the rug pulled out from under our feet as God's spirit breaks in anew. Whatever we have been thinking about, whatever images came to mind, we have a choice whether we allow that to change us or not. 